excited about that. I hope you'll catch that vision. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Again, taking a break from our work through the Minor Prophets. Because this is our mission's emphasis month, sent to serve September, uh, I want to take a moment to look at this text. And while you're turning there, let me just say thank you again for all the prayers, the texts, the calls, the cards. Uh, surgery went well. Recovery is ongoing. Uh, most of you know that I'm not exactly just a well of uh, patience, so I'm struggling with the time frame, but it is getting better. We are getting there. 2 Timothy chapter 3 We'll be looking at verse 10 through 17. The, the, the sermon title today is simply this, The Making of a Minister. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about some of the amazing feats of architecture and engineering we have in our world. Uh, we have some amazing things. We have some amazing buildings, structures. Uh, we've put somebody on the moon. We have uh, ships and planes that can travel great distances and carry huge weights. We have some amazing technology and power generation. Uh, I worked at a nuclear plant. It's still a, a remarkable thing that somebody figured out how to split an atom, control the power that comes from that, and use it to generate electricity. Here, here's what all of those things have in common. Whether the greatest building, the greatest machine, the greatest technology we have at our fingertips today, they all started from very basic beginnings. All of them started from an idea, a concept, a drawing, uh, a cornerstone of a structure, the first piece of metal in the, the, the frame of a building, the first uh, microprocessor, the first uh, piece of plastic in, in, a, in a screen. All of these things started with very basic steps. And in the life of a believer, it's really the same way. Uh, now, we're going to exclude Paul because he's writing this letter. Paul had a remarkable beginning. It wasn't a small step in Paul's beginning. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. It knocked him off, his, off of his horse. It blinded him. That was an amazing beginning. But for everybody else, all the rest of us, we have very basic beginnings to our lives as followers of Jesus. Uh, the most influential people in our faith had to start somewhere. It wasn't on a stage. You didn't begin on a stage. You didn't begin uh, on the mission field. You started somewhere else, very, very small ways. So not everyone is called to be a vocational minister. So I, I want to state that so that you understand that when I say the making of a minister, I'm not just talking about somebody who, who is a vocational minister, a pastor, a, 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 a you know, staff member. That's not what we're talking about. Every person who has come under the lordship of Christ is a minister. You are a minister of the gospel to your classroom, to your patients, to your job site, to your family uh, to Winn-Dixie and Walmart and uh, Publix. We are ministers of the gospel. As we go, we're to take Jesus with us to a lost and dying world. We are all called to be ministers, and we can all be a part of something remarkable, something enormous, something bigger than ourselves. I'll give you one example, and we're going to mention this guy again at the end, but, but I want to give you one example that's just amazing. Uh, one Sunday afternoon in the 1880s, there was a man by the name of Harry Monroe who was in Chicago, he was walking down the street, and he meets a young man. He didn't know it at the time, but this was a professional baseball player. Now, for us, this is weird because, like, professional athletes now are like Greek gods. We, we have put them on a pedestal and worshipped them. That's not how they – they had it better back in the 1800s. That's just what he did for a living. It was just his job. But he was roaming around in his free time before a game, and he runs across this guy named Harry Monroe, and he starts a conversation with him and ends up inviting him to come to 
uh, basically a revival service. It's a, a, a church service they were doing. And, and so he goes, and eventually he came to several more of those, and, and finally he gave his life to the Lord. He surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, and it, that man's name was Billy Sunday. Now, some of you recognize that name, others don't, but let me just tell you, Billy Sunday is widely considered the most influential American evangelist of the early part of the 20th century. He, he, he spoke in revivals, over 300 revivals, and he spoke to an attendance of over a million people. All because some guy invited him to come to church. Some guy ran into him and said, hey, why don't you come to this service with me? And the Lord used that to, to bring him to Christ and to see him saved and then used powerfully in the mission field. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set this precedent. Everybody's a minister. So when I say the making of a minister, I don't just mean a minister of the gospel professionally or vocationally. I mean everybody. The making of a minister requires you. And God has given us three things. These are not three options. These are not three things. Right, one of my pet peeves is when I hear people in church go, that's just not my gift. Well, I would do that, but that's just not my gift. These are three things that aren't giftings, they're commands. Okay, God hasn't gifted you to teach. Then don't be a teacher. If somebody asks you to be a teacher and you know God has not gifted you to be a teacher, tell them no. I would prefer that. I would rather you tell them no than do a terrible job as a teacher. If God has not called you to be a brain surgeon, I don't want you rooting around in my head. But these are three things that every one of us, if we profess the name of Jesus, every one of us, he has not asked us to do that. He has commanded us to do this. It is not a gift. It is a command. A command is different than a gift. A gift is something that you have the option of using. Now, I would argue that you don't have much of an option because he's gifted you with it in order to use it. But we're going to leave that alone. That's a sermon for another day. When he commands you to do something, you don't say, well, Lord, that's not my gift. What you're saying is, that's not my preference. And look at me, your preference don't matter a hill of beans in the kingdom of God. Can I just be honest with you? If, if I'm on the ditch digging crew and I'm the foreman and you show up to work and you say, you know, shovels just aren't my gift, you got to go. You'll be looking for another job. So when God calls you into his kingdom, when he calls you out of darkness into light, he calls you to do these three things. If you would stand with me and we're going to read this passage together. Y'all know I like to stand in honor of the public reading of the Word of God. And this is an amazing text that we're going to look at today. Paul, in his second letter to his young protege, Timothy, he's just started this chapter. By the way, remember, there were no chapters in these letters. Is how we've broken it out in the Bible so we can kind of follow along. But he's talking about all the problems that are coming, all the issues they're going to have to deal with. And so then he begins in verse 10 with the word, but. He's basically saying everything's going to be really, really bad. That don't matter, <laughs> because here's what I'm telling you. But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who, who is that? All. All. And, and they will, not might, they will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse. We've seen that. 
deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. You know those who taught you. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Pause. What is he saying there? That the scriptures are where we get wisdom. And by, by that wisdom that we hear, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We hear the word of Christ. We understand it. And then by faith in Jesus, we're saved. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Before we pray, I'm going to just one point from this. The purpose of coming to faith, the purpose of the scriptures is that the man of God, the lady of God, the woman of God, the man of God may be complete, whole, prepared, ready, and equipped to go to heaven. Now, that's not what it says, is it, Gina? Equipped so that you don't have to go to hell. That's not what it says, is it? Equipped for every good work. Every good work includes the three things that I'm about to give you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Speak through me. God, may I decrease. May you increase. God, diminish me. Exalt Jesus through what I say. May Christ get the glory. We pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing is reaching. Reaching. Three things. Number one, reaching. Before you can do anything else impactful in the life of a person, you have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then you've got to get them to Jesus. How do you get them to Jesus? You share the gospel with them. Well, how do I know I'm empowered to do that? Acts 1.8. Some of the last words that Jesus gives his apostles, he says, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witness. You receive power to be his witnesses. You don't receive power to go to heaven. You don't receive power to stay out of hell. You don't receive power to hide in a church and never be around any people that are lost. You don't receive power so that you can have a holy huddle and keep your kids away from anybody that doesn't know Jesus and they might have bad, in, bad, bad uh, interactions with them and it might, might cause them problems. You don't have power so that you'll never hurt. You don't have power so that you'll never cry. You don't have power so that you'll never have a problem. You have power so that you will be His Witnesses, I want you to hear me clearly this morning. I'm not mad at you. I'm just excited about what the Word of God says. If you claim Christ, but you refuse to acknowledge Him publicly, you don't have power. You don't have Jesus. Everybody okay? I'm an introvert. Figure something out. Seals talk about this all the time. Work the problem. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is not that you don't know your calling. The problem is you're an introvert. The problem is you're bashful. The problem is you're shy. Work the problem. Figure out another way. Figure out how to work it another way. You can build relationships. The most introverted people I know still have close personal relationships. Leverage those for the gospel. Listen, I'm an introvert. I don't like being up here. That's what God called me to do. It exhausts me to be up here. But God called me to do this. Extroverts get empowered by being up here. Extroverts have a ton of friends. They're meeting people all the time. Never met a stranger. You people have no excuse. You ought to be just like oozing Jesus. You like to talk anyway. Talk about him. 
I, I don't care what your personal preference or your personal personality style or your... Uh, you are called to be an evangelist. You are a missionary. You are full of power because you're filled with the Spirit so that you can be His witnesses. Where? He says in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is your immediate context. Mobile. Maybe even your school, your job, your neighborhood. And then uh, Judea and Samaria are the, ex, uh, the ex outside parts of that. <laughs> I'm having trouble with my words this morning. The, just, just outside the boundaries of your immediate context, and then all the way to the ends of the, of the earth, the, the, the complete and total planet. Some of you say, well, I can't go there. That's fine. Pray for those who are going there. Give to those who are going there. Let me encourage you. We're still doing our missions giving this month. Continue to pray about how the Lord would have you to give and give to that. That may be your mechanism for reaching the uttermost parts or the ends of the earth. You and I have a responsibility to our Jerusalem, our Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. The primary reason that we are filled with the Spirit is just so that we can be witnesses for Christ everywhere we go and everywhere on earth. Now, sometimes that means that we capitalize on an opportunity to drop a gospel nugget in somewhere. Part of what we're going to ask you to do in the Mission 168 is just be sensitive. Walk around sensitive to the needs of those around you. Maybe there's somebody in your sphere of influence that needs prayer. Be alert to that. Is anybody else in here sometimes you get in a cocoon? In tunnel vision, you're thinking about your own problems and your own stuff. I've got to remember to do this. I've got to remember to take this pill. I've I got this appointment. I've got this meeting. I've got this project at work. And you, get, and you could walk by needy people left and right, and you're just so focused on what you have to do we're asking you for 168 hours, one week, to just turn your radar on. Take the blinders off and see. Maybe there's a place where you can just say, hey, man, Jesus loves you, and I do too. Can I pray for you? Hey, hey I, I know you're going through some stuff, and I'm not trying to be preachy, but can I just tell you that I've gone through some stuff too, and the only way I made it is my relationship with Jesus? Man, I'm going to be praying for you. Sometimes it's just a gospel nugget. It's not preaching a sermon. It's not reciting the book of James. It's just telling them that there's hope. Sometimes it means that you're, you're building a relationship. Listen, every follower of Christ should think of every relationship in their life as an opportunity to get Jesus to somebody. If I have a relationship with the person at the gas station because I have to go to that gas station often, and I know nobody goes... Anybody go, anybody go inside a gas station in the last two years? Very few. Uh, we pay at the pump and go, but if you go in, hey, hey, Charles, how you doing, man? Good to see you. Hey, Sally, good to see you. Nice to see you. And just try to build a relationship so that you can turn that into an invitation. Other times, that means maximizing your impact through relationships you already have. Parents, you are the primary discipler of your kids. You have got to evangelize your household. You've got to be, that's got to be your first mission field. The light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. I can't remember who said that. It's not mine. Uh, but, but that's how we have to think about it. We have to be missionaries in our homes, missionaries in our workplace, in our schools, missionaries in our neighborhoods, in our communities. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul refers to Timothy this way. He says, quote, My dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. In, in 2 Timothy 2, just a chapter back from where we read today, verses 1 and 2, he says, you, therefore, my son, referring to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, that, this verse is not important to what I'm about to point out, 
but this is a verse that we hammer here at West Mobile uh, because this is the four generations of evangelism that we believe strongly in. But, but what he says in 2 Timothy 2.2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You have four generations. What you have, what you have heard from me in the presence of others, teach to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, I'm discipling you, you're discipling somebody else so that they can disciple somebody else. That's what discipleship really is. You're not a disciple unless you are making a disciple. And you are not a disciple maker until your disciple is making a disciple. So that's where we are. That's what we talk about. But, but based on the fact that he calls him my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord and my son, Paul very likely led Timothy to Christ. Later on, Timothy grows in his faith, which is the expectation for all of us. And we see in Romans 16, 21, Paul doesn't refer to him there as my dearly loved child and, and son. He refers to, them, to him there as my co-worker, Timothy. You see, that's really the design. The design is not that you stay a spiritual infant for your entire life and constantly need to come to me to be fed or you'll starve to death. What, what that is, is you are growing in your relationship with the Lord. You're growing in your knowledge of the Lord. You're growing in your study of the Bible. You're growing in your relationship with people that you're building discipleship relationships with. And as you continue to do that, you don't, you don't stay a son or a daughter. You become a co-worker. Parents, some of you have older kids now, adult children now. I, I'm, I'm still in that process of learning how to do that. Uh, my kids are 18 and 20. It's, it's kind of a transitory time. They're, they're becoming my co-workers, not my children. I mean, they'll always be my children, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's getting to the point where it's not so much, I'm, I can remember when me and April were feeding them, you know, the, the little baby food and the little cereal thing and wiping their mouth and, and changing diapers. We don't do that anymore. If you, if you had an older child and you still had to feed them, you have done a really terrible job as a parent. Like if, you, if your older child is in college and when they come home from college that day, they go, all right, mom, they sit at the table and they put their bib on and go. <laughs> if you've got a 25-year-old baby bird living in your house, we've got problems. I'll say the same thing about discipling. You, you should be discipling your kids so that they disciple others, not so they remain a disciple and they never grow and learn. That's not what we're called to do. You and I may not be the next Paul or the next Timothy, but we might be the one to lead the next Paul or Timothy to faith in Christ. But we can't do that without reaching. Number two is teaching. Now, to give some context here, reaching may be the end of your involvement in the life of a believer. You, you may reach them and then somebody else may have a closer relationship with them that they disciple them and they teach them and train them. It may be just the beginning when you, when you reach them, and you may be the person who primarily teaches and trains them. But another possibility is you may not even lead them to Christ, but you may pick up investing in them after somebody else leads them to Christ. As a, a college pastor, this is especially uh, important to me, and what we've witnessed, me and April, a lot of times is that we would have kids come to college when we were in Dothan or when we were here as college pastor. People would come to college already saved, but that doesn't mean I go, oh, you're already saved? Never mind, you need to go back to the person who led you to Christ and let them disciple you. That's not how that works. They show up and you say, hey, yeah, let's go. Where are you at and how, how far can I get you? Okay, how, you, you, you don't act, literally like give them a survey. 
please fill this out so I know whether you're a moron in Jesus or a doctoral student in Jesus. But you, you start to figure out. You meet them where they are, and you figure out where you can take them. That's where we sometimes find ourselves. The teaching part is really who reaches them and who teaches them is really just kind of up to the Lord and how he puts people in people's lives. Paul spoke to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. There was dissension in the early church at Corinth. Some were like, I'm with Paul, and some were saying, I'm with Apollos, because those were two of the primary teachers that had been in that area. Paul's like, no, 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 no. We're, we're not picking sides of who's, who's the disciple or uh, who's the better disciple or who's the better teacher. So here's what he says. This is out of the New Living Translation because it's a little bit smoother, easier to understand. He says this, I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their own hard work, for we are both God's workers. Some translations there say we are God's co-workers. What he is doing is he is inviting us into the work that he will accomplish. He is allowing you and I to have a part, a role, in what he is eventually doing in the life of someone who comes to faith in Christ and someone who continues this journey. We can't get caught up in our numbers. Oh, well, I've led so many people to the Lord, and I've baptized so many people, and I've had so many people come through. No, 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 no. You plant or you water, but God gives the increase. God makes it grow. He's the one that deserves the praise. As we read in 10 and 11 in 2 Timothy 3, Paul tells him to, uh, he says, you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and suffering. What he's saying is, you have seen me live out a godly example for what it looks like to be surrendered to Christ. You have watched me go through good and bad times. You have watched me lose it. You've watched me recover from losing it. You have watched me in my good days. You have watched me in my struggles. You have seen me purposefully following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to give you two primary statements that I want you to grab from this, okay? As it relates to this, these two verses... You have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and suffering. Paul talking to his protege, Timothy, who's he, who he's discipling. All right, here we go. Number one, being part of a family of faith means we are being poured into and we are pouring into others. Being part of a family of faith means you are being poured into, but you're also pouring into the lives of others. Now, this is the interactive portion of the sermon, so wake your neighbor up. You know, you're Baptist, so most of this is not interactive. <laughs> but this is the interactive part. Those of you that have been to Westmobile for a while, and listen, if you're, if you're a visitor, thank you for being here. Don't feel pressured. You don't have to answer this. I'm talking to our people, okay? If you've been here for a while, if you feel like the church has done a good job, a pretty good job of pouring into you, would you raise your hand? Good, that makes the pastor feel better. Now, hold on. You can put your hands down. Don't answer this one out loud, but honestly answer this to yourself. Those of you that raised your hand and said, yes, Wemo has done a good job of pouring into me. What kind of job have you done pouring into others? Don't raise your hand. But honestly answer that question. If we as a church are pouring into you, are you pouring into others? 
Can I just tell you something? Two things. Just, man, I, there's times when I really wish we weren't streaming. Because <laughs> somebody's going to clip this and it's going to sound really bad. Neil, you're going to defend me on this. If you have been here for a while and you did not raise your hand, you said, hey, the church is not pouring into me. Either you're doing something wrong or we're doing something wrong. So you either need to come and talk to me and tell me what's going on so I can figure out which it is and so I can help you. If we're not pouring into you, I'm going to figure out why and we're going to work the problem. We're going to get better. But listen to me. If you have been here for a while and you don't feel we're pouring into you, maybe you need to go somewhere else that will pour into you. I know that's not church growth model. What I don't care. If you're, listen, our purpose is not to fill the building. Our purpose is to see Christ exalted in the lives of believers, to see his kingdom advance, to see people come to the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So if we're not pouring into you, we need to fix it, or maybe you need to move on. Okay? Now, if you're not pouring into others, that's a you problem. I would still appreciate it if you would come to me and tell me, hey, Brother Kevin, I'm, I'm convicted. You ask that question, I realize that I am just a big old sponge. I'm sucking up, soaking up all the pouring into, but I'm not pouring out. I ain't even leaking. I'm, not, I'm just not pouring out into anybody. I, I'm, I'm, I'm bogarting Jesus. I'm not trying to share. I'm not trying to pour into others. Come to me and tell me that. Let me find a place where you can plug in and serve. Again, well, I, I'm kind of an introvert. Okay, well, we can find somewhere for you to stand quietly and sweep. <laughs> Your hand fit around a mop handle, we can put you to work. <laughs> you pick up trash in the parking lot, you won't have to worry about talking to a soul, especially in June, July, August, September, October, most of November. Uh, we'll find somewhere for you to serve. If you're not pouring into others, help us figure that out. Help us help you to learn how to pour into others. Number two, what marks a successful church is the level to which her members are willing to invest in the lives of those around them. I'll say it again. What marks a successful church is the level to which her members are willing to invest in the lives of those around them. Listen to me. I hope, my, 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 my goal is that we ain't got enough seats in this place to pack everybody in. I want both services to be so full you can't stir them with a stick. Even on I-65, the high 65 up there, the, the balcony. I hope every seat in this joint is Packed to the gills. I, that'd be a great problem. Now, listen, I don't know how we might kill Grace and we might have to go to three services. I, I'm all for it. Whatever we need to do to reach the most people, I'm for it. But listen to me. If we had three services, four services, a Saturday night, a Thursday, it, it would, that's not indicative of a successful church. That's, a, that's indicative of a lot of people coming to church. But what is indicative of success is that we have members of our church who are willing to and actively investing in the lives of those around them. Find a youth or a college student that needs a mentor. How, families, open your doors to some of these college kids who are in from out of town. Invite them, hey, come eat Sunday lunch with us. I know college time, money's tight when you're in college. Come eat lunch with us. Some of our senior adults whose family doesn't live around here, find a, find a way to invest in them. Have them over for, for supper, for lunch. You might have to eat at four. <laughs> but, but have them over invite them over, pour into their life they, they got kids that live 7 hours away they're lonely, bring them in, encourage them write some cards, send some cards to our shut-ins, to those who can't get out as much 
Invest in the lives of people around you. That's the sign of a, of a healthy church. That's the sign of a successful church. That's the kind of church I want to be. We're supposed to invite folks to come. We're supposed to share the gospel. We're supposed to pass on our knowledge. And we're really, here, look at me. We are supposed to give our lives for something bigger than ourselves. That's the gospel. The gospel is not that we hibernate, insulate, migrate, hesitate. The, the gospel is that we pour ourselves out for others. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2, 17 and 18. He said, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. We are to be poured out. Our lives are meant to be poured out for the glory of Jesus, for the advancement of his kingdom. You know what happens to a drink when it's poured out? It's gone. You can't get it back. You can't pick up the mud and squeeze the drink back out. If you dump your sweet tea in a, in a pot of potting soil, if you really want to, you can... You, listen, by the way, I love sweet tea, but if you start filtering out the potting soil to get the tea back out of it that you poured into it, you need professional help. You got a problem. We don't go back and get it when we pour it out. It's just poured out. It's used. Whatever God desires to do with my life, I pray that he would do that no matter what it looks like. If I am already being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm good with it. We have to have that attitude. If we're going to pour into the lives of others, we have to be willing for our lives to be poured out. When the church at Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas on their first official missionary journey, they took a young man with them to help. Everybody remember that? Those of you that have been coming on Wednesday night, we've talked about it. In Acts 13.5, it says they took John as their assistant. This is John Mark. This is Barnabas' cousin, uh, his assistant. The, the word there in the Greek actually literally means an under-oarsman. Or. So, so like the guy in the bottom of the ship doing the dirty work, the brand new guy. He doesn't know how to adjust the sails. He doesn't know how to call the shots, but he's down there holding those sticks and pulling on them. That's who John, or John Mark, was. By using him as their assistant, they were training and preparing him to lead one day. Now, by the way, it didn't go well for John Mark on that first journey. If you continue to read through the book of Acts, uh, he, he fails. He gets out on the mission field. I think it's in chapter 14 or maybe 13. He gets out there. He has a, what, we don't know exactly what happened, conflict of faith, of illness or whatever, but he quits and he goes back. And it caused so much of a problem that when Paul and Barnabas start to go back out uh, in 15, Barnabas is like, hey, I'm going to take my cousin. Paul said, you ain't taking that rascal. Uh-uh, uh-uh, -uh. that joker done burnt the bridge with me, buddy. We ain't taking him. If Paul was from Florella, that's what he would have sounded like, by the way. If y'all ever wondered what Paul the Apostle would sound like if he was from Florella, that was him. Hey, we, look here. We ain't taking that rascal. That's sorry, Joker done messed around. He done quit on us. I, listen, I ain't got no room for no quitters on my team. I ain't taking him. To the point that Barnabas said, okay, fine. I'll go and I'll take John Mark. And Paul went and took Silas. God actually doubled the missionary force <laughs> using John Mark. Does, does everybody realize that, that John Mark is Mark who wrote one of the four Gospels? He quit on his first missionary trip. God restored him. He grew him to the point that he wrote one of the four Gospels. Now tell me again why it is that you think God can't use you? Hey, miss me with that negativity. 
Oh, you know, we're educational. I don't know nothing about the Bible. John Mark quit on his first missionary trip, wrote one of the Gospels. Hey, get back in the boat. Let's go. Get back in. Let's move. When an assistant takes the lead one day, the the expectation is that he or she would do the same for someone else that was done for them. Some of you right now, if I told you to think about it, you can think of somebody who has poured into you. Can I tell you what a disgrace it would be for you to take what somebody has poured into you and then never pour it into somebody else? Don't do that. Don't be selfish. Somebody poured into you or you wouldn't be here. Pay it forward. Pass it on. Reaching, teaching, number three, sending. Reaching, teaching, sending. One of the problems that I've seen in the approach that people take in the American church to the gospel is that, that sometimes we, all, and I'll say me too, sometimes we view a profession of faith or a baptism as the finish line. We're like, whoo, got them. Whoo, that's close. Didn't think they were going to commit. But we got them in. They got saved. They got baptized. We're done. Wrong. Really, that's just phase one of the mission. Phase one of the mission is get them Jesus. Phase two of the mission is continue to pour into them and grow them into the likeness of Christ. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They ought to be a whole lot easier to work with once they come to Christ. But your work is not done. Again, your specific personal work may be done. You may lead somebody to Jesus and then somebody else may pick up the discipleship uh, connection after that, but we all have a part to play. Why? Because we are given the great commission, not the great request, not the great suggestion. We are given the great commission. You know what a commission is talking about? It's, It's talking about like being commissioned in the military. If you're commissioned as an officer in the military, you don't get to choose which orders you carry out or which orders you pass down. You are commissioned. You are in service. You are called into God's service through the Great Commission. I'm going to read it. Matthew 28. Again, I used, to, I used to hear 19 and 20. If you don't get 18, you don't know what in the world you're out there working with. So it's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is all authority. Jesus says, I have all authority on heaven, uh, in heaven and on earth. I've got all of it. Therefore, in other words, because I have all authority, you need to go. You need to go as you go, make disciples. If you're not, listen to me, and I say this with, listen, it sounds harsh, but I'm just trying to tell you what the word says. Listen, I could get up here and tell you something that makes you feel good about yourself, but if it's not going to get you closer to Jesus, you need to fire me and find you somebody else who will get the job done. I'm not up here to hurt any feelings. I'm not up here to upset or make mad. I'm up here to say, thus saith the Lord. That's what my job is. By the way, if y'all won't let me do that, I will go do that somewhere else because I'm not in this for the, the, the recognition or whatever. I'm in it because this is what God has commanded me to do. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If you claim Christ but you don't share Christ, you've got a heart problem. The great commission is given to every believer, every follower of Jesus is told, as you go, make disciples. 
what Paul told Timothy, what you have heard in me, heard from me in the presence of others, teach to faithful men who will teach others also. That's what you need to be doing. That's the go and make disciples part. Baptize them. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded. And, and the great thing about this is this is not Jesus kicking you out of the nest and telling you, good luck, get after it. He says, I'm going to be with you. The one who has been given all authority, the one who has been given total sovereignty, the one who has all the power in the universe is with you. Tell me again why you're scared to share the gospel. Listen to me. If you start to share the gospel and you start to get scared, look over your shoulder and picture Jesus standing behind you going, baby, you got this. Keep going. You got it. Come on, you can do this. Anybody have a coach like that? Just, that coach is constantly just pouring. Come on, you, one, you can do one more rep. You can do one more lap. That's him. He goes with us on the mission field. Everywhere we go, he's with us, and he's encouraging us to do what he's commanded us to do. When someone comes to faith in Jesus, their old life is ending, but their new life is just beginning. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old has passed away. Everything has become new. With that new life comes a new mission, to replicate themselves by knowing the word, and sharing the story of how Jesus saved them. Again, replicate, not hibernate, not obfuscate, not mitigate, not Watergate, not Golden Gate. Replicate. Take what you have learned and pass it on to somebody else. And by the way, that is another encouragement to keep learning. You know, the more I learn, the more I want to learn about Jesus. The more I know him, the more I want to know him. And the more I know him, the more people I want to tell about him. In, in 2 Timothy 1, it looks like we're backing up into 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy 3, and then we're going to go to 2, and then we go to 1. We're just going the wrong direction. 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy this. He says, quote, fan into flame the gift of God. The picture is that fire is burning low, and there's no more flame. It's just embers. And he said, hey, fan into flame. Sometimes somebody has shared the gospel. Somebody's come to faith in Christ. But that flame has gone out and they're just an ember. Stoke it, blow, get, get it going, get, fan the flame and let it burn. This is what we do when we continue to pour into other believers through personal discipleship. If you're not in a discipleship group, you are missing the opportunity to fan into flame the gift of God. That's what every one of us should be looking to do. Reaching, teaching, sending. We'll close with this. Now, by the way, when I close my Bible, that doesn't mean you close your mind or close your ears. You know what it means when a pastor or a preacher says in closing? Nothing. Let me tell you a story. I told you we're going to talk about this in, in a lot of different areas and levels. Let me tell you my personal story. I can still remember how excited I was to move into the teens at First Assembly of God in Florella. hundred years ago, <laughs> I know the college students are always like, they have... Electricity back then? Yeah, they did. One of the main reasons that I was so excited to move into the teens, uh, well, really, how many fifth and sixth graders we got? Any fifth and sixth grade? I think we got, most of them are upstairs. We got a few of them in here. Okay. Fifth and sixth, I'm going to talk bad about them, okay? So just, hey, don't, don't tell your friends. Fifth and sixth graders are annoying as all get out. Let's just be honest. I'm just kidding. Fifth and sixth graders, I call them tweens, okay? They're in between. They're not a teenager yet, but they don't feel like they're a little kid yet. By the way, you're still a little kid, so mind your business. 
But, but they're, it's tough, I mean, all kidding aside, it's tough to reach them because they feel like some of the stuff that they're in is a little kiddie, but they're really not ready to be in youth ministry. They're, they're going to be exposed to some stuff with some high schoolers that, they're just in a tough, it's just a tough time of life. I was in that time, and I was ready to get out of it. And so that was one of the reasons. But the other reason was a lady by the name of Louise Ward. And since I was raised Pentecostal, she was Sister Ward. You didn't refer to anybody by their name in, in, Southern, in, in the Assembly of God without brother or sister in front of it. So Sister Ward was going to be my Sunday school teacher. Her husband was a bluegrass musician, really talented, awesome guy. She was an amazing lady and always had a smile on her face and just always encouraging. And so I was excited to get into her class and be, and by the way, a lot of times at First Assembly, I was the youth department. <laughs> It'd be me and Sister Ward sitting in her class, you know, eating biscuits that she had brought because nobody else showed up. But, but here, here's my point. She was a good teacher. But I don't remember a lot about her teacher. I don't remember, like, she was not like this great teacher that I remember everything she ever taught. I was a stupid little kid. I wasn't half paying attention most of the time anyway. So I don't remember her as a great teacher. I'm sure she did a good job. Here's what I remember. She cared about me. She loved on me. She encouraged me. Every Sunday, if I would come in there, I, the only reason, a lot of times the only reason I was there is because I could, as a kid, stupid little kid, I never could figure out how to get enough hot water on the thermos, uh, thermometer so that it wouldn't say 110. My mom think I was dead. But I had enough fever so I wouldn't have to go to church. Because that was our rule. If you were either running a high fever or throwing up, you didn't have to go. But every broken arm, going to church. If you're not throwing up or running a fever, you're going to church. So, so a lot of times I didn't want to be there. But when I walked in that classroom, she made me feel like I was the most important person at that church. And she loved on me and she encouraged me. She took us to the skating rink in Andalusia for class trips. I get to invite some of my friends. We'd go up there and go roller skating. She, she just cared about us. She loved on us. And even though she went to glory shortly after I came to Westmobile, if it wasn't for Louise Ward, I don't know that I would be your pastor. She poured into me. She encouraged me. She gave me hope. She gave me a, a smiling face week after week, even if I don't wanna, didn't want to be there. She didn't lead me to a profession of faith, but she capitalized on the opportunities that God gave her to pour into a young man. She didn't teach at seminary. She wasn't a pastor of a church. She didn't hold a staff position, but she just invested in a stupid young boy and encouraged him to know and follow Jesus. You could be the person that does that for somebody else. You could be the person that for somebody else is a simple, consistent, faithful witness of the call of God on your life to serve the local church. Now, honestly, the making of a minister is something that only a sovereign God can do, and he can only do it through you and I as members of a local body of believers. And I'm going to give you an example. We'll close with this. Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball. I've mentioned him before. Some of you may recognize the name. But um, in 1855, he went to a shoe store where a young man that was in his Sunday school class was working. This young man was a failure. He was a loser, to be honest. He, he, he had no focus. He was kind of bouncing around. Uh, a lot of people would have looked at him and said he was worthless, not worth his time. But he went there and he shared the gospel with a young man who came to faith in Christ. That young, man, young man's name was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody uh, was an evangelist. He was preaching and a young man by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman came to faith in Christ at one of his meetings. Eventually he would go on, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Chapman went on to be the one who, uh, Billy Sunday was converted under one of his meetings. That was the man I told you about earlier. 
Billy Sunday preached over a million people. At one of Billy Sunday's meetings, a man by the name of Mordecai Ham came to faith in Christ and later went on to be a preacher. And at one of his meetings, a young man by the name of Billy Graham professed faith in Christ. Billy Graham went on to preach to an estimated 2.2 billion people in his life with an estimated 2.2 million people who gave their lives to Jesus under his preaching. What, what I'm saying is that if it weren't for a Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball in 1855 who went to a shoe store to witness to a young man who everybody else thought was a lost cause, we may never have gotten Billy Graham. So here's the question. Will you let God use you in accomplishing his call to reach your Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth? If you will just be faithful, if you will just submit to the Lordship of Christ and be obedient to what he has called you to do, you may be the person who invests in the next Paul, Timothy, Billy Sunday, Mordecai Ham, Billy Graham. But only if you're willing to be obedient.